So we come now to our systematic or introduction to systematic theology. We are continuing to look at the doctrine of creation, and this is our third lesson. In the previous two lessons, we spent a little time discussing the infra versus superlapsarian debate. And then by using a modified version of superlapsarianism, we demonstrated not only the logical necessity of the work of creation and God's eternal decree, but its purpose as well. And the purpose for which creation serves, we said, is God's desire to be glorified in his holiness, power, wisdom, justice, wrath, goodness, truth, and grace via a work of salvation established by a covenant in which the Father chooses to save some and not save others. The Son takes on a reasonable soul and body so that the man, Jesus Christ, who is united to the Godhead, subjects himself to the law, perfects obedience, subjects himself to the wrath of God. He dies as a substitutionary atonement for the elect and then raises from the dead to ascend into heaven at the Father's right hand and exercise all authority over heaven and earth as prophet, priest, and king. And then the Spirit applies the benefits of that purchased salvation to the elect at his appointed time. Again, a powerful message is found in Colossians 1. In fact, I'm thinking about preaching on these verses when it comes time and the doctor has a surgery. Because I was just, you know, reading this last week, just this scripture is just something else. Paul writes, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I mean, if that's not a powerful mission statement in the Bible, I don't know what is. The incarnate word in his work of atonement, which we see in those words, making peace by the blood of his cross, which could not be a possible, uh, possible apart from the second person of the Trinity, taking on our nature or the central theme to God's whole eternal plan. God's work of creation is by him, it is through him, and it is for him. And he is holding it all together to serve the purpose of glorifying and making Christ Jesus preeminent. That's the point of creation. That is its purpose. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 are setting us up for. So when we flip to the, over to the end of the book, the end of the story, we read in Revelation 4 about John who was caught up in the spirit and he saw a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And then he sees these four living creatures. And the four living creatures, he says in verse 8, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. 
for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But that's not all. John's still looking, and he saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, and on the back sealed with seven seals. He says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a heart and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that in them is saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down in worship. Beloved, just catch that vision. That's the point of creation. That's its purpose. That's the end game. It's not at odds with God's eternal purpose. It is the very means, it's the very substance of God's eternal plan. God decreed to create. Then he decreed a fall. And he decreed a redemption of that creation to glorify himself in all his perfection and attributes. And at center stage of that is the lamb, the incarnate word who was slain, whose blood purchased a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Paul wrote in Romans 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Any view, any perspective that robs creation of this purpose is not the view of the Bible. It's not the hope in which we are saved. It's a foreign plan, it's a foreign gospel. 
And that's why I wanted to emphasize this so much. Understanding this emphasis gets us going in the right direction on how we view creation. It prevents us from going into all these weird ideas and speculations and scientism and everything else, which end up in gross heresy. Well, I better move on or end up doing a third part to my introduction. So with that said, let's start unpacking then this paragraph in our confession. Now we won't be able to get through all of it today, but we can at least get started. And by the way, if the lesson seems shorter today, it's because we shortened it to 20 minutes instead of 30. It's not because I'm a great speaker and you just got caught up in my wonderful speaking. But uh, anyways, back to chapter four of creation in our confession. It pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible in the space of six days, and all very good. Now notice that first part is basically what we've been talking about in the last two lessons. Here we see the purpose of creation. It pleased God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the manifestation of his glory to create. Now, some of the vines probably would not have taken the route that I did, superlapsarianism, in order to make that theological point, but that, in the main, that's the point I'm making. Creation serves the purpose of manifesting the glory of God. Well, the confession goes on to say that to reach that purpose, God, in the beginning, creates or makes of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. So let's start unpacking that, and we only have time really for one point here today, one major point. And that point is this. Notice that the divines tell us what God did. But here's a question for you. How do we know that? Where did they get this knowledge from? Well, the obvious answer I think we all know in this room is because the Bible tells us so. And while that may seem like such an obvious and simple answer, I don't think it's one we should gloss over. Because many people, even professing Christians, for some reason just want to mess this up and muddy it up. Consider, first of all, that no man was there in the beginning to witness the beginning. Scripture tells us that man was not created until day six. Even non-believers, as far as I know, argue that nobody was there when the Big Bang happened or whatever it is they want to argue. But if that's the case, then how can we talk about what happened and why it happened? Well, we can't, apart from God telling us what happened. Not even Adam would have known what happened the previous five days unless God had told him what happened. And since that is the case, understand something very important here. Our understanding of creation, its origins, its purpose, and so on, is not and cannot be the result of human experience or scientific observation. You know, I've always kind of cracked up over this point because it just seems so painfully obvious and simple to me, but we're told by empiricists that, well, I can only know what I experience. You know, what I taste, touch, smell, hear, and see. Okay, so were you there when all things started? Well, no, nobody was there. Well, then how do you know? I mean, you just told me that you have to experience it in order to know something. But neither you nor anybody experienced the beginning. So how do you know anything about it? And of course, they don't know anything about it. 
Now, let me be clear. I'm not bashing science. Scientific observation has a place in our lives. It is a great tool for dominion. I love computers, apples, cars, the internet. But we have to understand that science plays a very, very limited, restricted role in our lives. There are simply things we cannot know via scientific investigation. And the origin and purpose of creation is one of those things. And this is the main point for you today. Our knowledge of creation is a question of faith. Those who oppose the Bible's account do not do, do so because they supposedly have discovered or can discover its origins and purpose under a lab. That's impossible, but because of their prior religious commitments. Imagine, if you will, that you're an alien on this planet. You're walking along or maybe hovering along, whatever aliens do. And you come up on this round orange thing in the grass. It's about this big. It's got little seams in it. You're not going to have any idea what in the world this thing is, what it's used for, who made it, why they made it, when they made it, what's the purpose. And then this young kid comes along and after his initial shock, because you're an alien, he's like, can I have my basketball back? And he dribbles over to the court and plays his game with his, with his buddies. And you're watching this and you're observing, oh, okay, there's this game and there's these rules apparently which you can and cannot do with the orange ball and the hoop. And then if you stick around long enough, you observe this young kid get really good, become a pro, make millions of dollars, and then complain about his life. But anyway, I digress. You would have never figured out any of that by just observing this orange ball sitting in the grass. Not in a million years would you have been able to simply observe that ball and then work yourself backwards to the game of basketball and all the rules and everything else and the purpose of that ball. And yet we think that by observing rocks and grass, we can figure out why, when, and where it all came from and its purpose. But we can somehow reason backwards to the origins and purpose that, of creation that God has revealed. I'm just stating it's, it's impossible. It's absurd. What really happens in these theories of evolution, Big Bang, and all the rest is that they are already committed to certain presuppositions that they want to be true, none of which is actually based on reality of what God has told us. Instead, it's based on a blind, irrational faith. And then they work backwards, constructing a theory along the way to fit their preconceived ideas. We call that scientism, not science. And they do this to deny the reality of what is, to deny God, to redefine things. Moorcraft notes in his work on the larger catechism, many of these people even flat out admit this. He says, quote, in their unguarded moments, humanists admit that their theories of evolution are based on blind faith, not on facts. D.H. Scott, for example, in his presidential address on nature in 1921 says, a new generation has grown up which knows not Darwin. Is even then evolution not a scientifically ascertained fact? No, we must hold it as an act of faith because there is no alternative. D.M.S. Watson, professor of zoology in London University said, quote, evolution is a theory universally accepted, not because it can be proved to be true, 
but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly impossible. And then W.T. Cowman of the zoology section of the British Museum said in the Proceedings on the Linnean Society, 147th session, we all, even the youngest of us, profess to accept the doctrine of evolution, if only as a convenient weapon with which to meet the fundamentalists. Beloved, we have to be extremely careful with this abuse of science and this issue of creation, its origin and purpose. We need to recognize that our understanding of creation is most certainly a matter of faith. It is a religious issue. And we need to be careful in considering our source of such knowledge. No knowledge is possible apart from God and his special revelation. In Job 38, we read, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And it just goes on and on. God just blitzing man with one rhetorical question after another. And of course, the answer to this is you were nowhere to be found. You had no knowledge of these things. So Moorcraft rightly notes the idea that God created the universe out of nothing by his word is not a mere human theory based on deductive reasoning or scientific investigation. It is a matter of fact that's revealed in the Bible in biblical revelation of the creator himself. And so yes, this is a matter of faith. It is a religious question whether people want to acknowledge that or not. So these attempts by public education teachers to divorce religion and the Bible from science and origin is complete nonsense. It's foolishness. You will never, ever, ever arrive at a knowledge of these things apart from God and his word. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And as I close, now tie this point in with what we have established in our first two lessons. If we have established that the very purpose of creation is to manifest the glory of God in all of his perfection and attributes, and he does this via a work of salvation, established by covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then that right there ought to clue you in to any talk about creation and its origins and that it's going to be a matter of faith, a question of faith. If you're blind and opposed to the gospel and opposed and blind to God's covenant of redemption, then how in the world are you going to rightly understand creation and its origins when the very existence of creation is due to God executing that plan. Beloved, I would submit to you that you simply cannot. And so be extremely careful with what you entertain in the name of science. Understand that what is really at work with a lot of this is people who are trying to work backwards and concoct theories about origins 
And they do this to suppress the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his eternal plan. There's no neutrality here in any of this with creation and origins. In fact, the very fact that we have these divisions is itself a manifestation of God's plan of redemption and the distinctions he's making between the elect and the non-elect, good and evil, light and darkness. Well, that was the fast 20 minutes. Uh, we'll end here and we'll pick back up on our confession that God creates or makes of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. But again, as we move into this, be thinking about this question of what are we basing this off of? Again, this is where you need to tie in everything that we've done so far. This is why we do systematic theology. Everything that we've done about the doctrine of Scripture and the doctrine of God, we're now bringing forward to now this question of creation.